Welcome to Rooster Radio. I'm Andrew Montessi with James Begley, and we're at the Adelaide Festival Centre, surrounded by neon signs, coloured ribbons. It's all happening here. We are on location for Oz Asia, which is uh, Australia's premier arts festival focusing on Asia. And uh, currently, there's a media pack to our left. We've got streamers, we've got people milling around, people putting up grandstands. So there's a real sense of anticipation. And we have a chat with Joseph Mitchell, who's the man who's put this on. He's the director of the festival and really interesting guy, actually. Talks about uh, the risk of putting on uh, events, uh, talks about his journey from a farm through to becoming a significant player in the direct and director of arts festivals in Australia. Unbelievably, he was also a swimmer for Australia, which is, if you don't mind, swam for Australia in his spare time. As you do. Some of the other interesting points that come up is this uh, intersection of art and business and how we can really leverage Asian art to make inroads into business in Asia. And more importantly, talks you know, in some specifics about the festival and what we can expect from it, including his, his uh, very ambitious vision. So let's get into it. This is Joseph Mitchell from the Oz Asia Festival. Joseph, welcome to Rooster Radio. Great. It's great to be here. When you, uh, when you wake up uh, the day after the festival is finished, how are you going to determine as to whether it's been a success or not? What are you looking for? Well, this year, uh, it's different for every festival. And uh, so clearly uh, you have a festival that uh, has an overarching vision from an artistic director that might span across a couple of years and, and in that regard for us this is very much about introducing a contemporary identity from Asia to Australian audiences here in Adelaide but then of course each individual annual festival you want to go down a little bit deeper and so this year uh, it's very much about fun accessibility vibrancy and energy and, and, and the experience of any single person whether they're four years old or 80 years old walking in through the festival so when I wake up the day after opening uh, I think uh, I'll immediately be considering uh, on the very first night uh, uh, was was there an energy in the audience who came through what did they where did they walk what did they listen to what did they buy tickets to and try and just self-assess if that if that was reflecting the sense of fun and and uh, and vibrancy and and a a sense of uh, finding your own pathway uh, through our festival this year. Well, if early stages are, are, are correct, we're just, um, to give the audience a bit of perspective, we're sitting in the, outside the Space Theatre and there are streamers, there's colour, there's, there's banners, so it's a good early start. It's our best Rooster Radio setting, that's for sure. Very we're picturesque. To, we've been in some pretty dingy offices <laughs> and uh, holes in the wall in the past, and this is quite amazing. You've done, done very well. Oh, thank you. And actually, this is uh, my close collaborator, the, our designer. Her name is Simone Romanyuk. And... And uh, uh, the, the, the colour scheme that we went for this year is uh, pink, orange, uh, yellow and red. And all of those colours are, are bright. They link into different countries right across Asia. It's fun. And, and of course, uh, we really wanted to get the, the, the modern sense of Asia. So, uh, of course, these neon signs mm. lining the alleyways of our theatre and actually outside for our festival hub as well just kind of shows the... The, the, the vibrancy of, uh, of Asia uh, for our festival. So I'm glad you like it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Festivals are a, a really interesting entrepreneurial case study because there's all this upfront effort, upfront 
expense, upfront marketing, all these costs in the hope of um, having financial and, I guess, creative success at the end of the day. How, how does, I guess, this enormous risk factor sit with you? Mm. So uh, the festival runs in a, in a not-for-profit scenario uh, uh, in that uh, we're underwritten by funds from the government, whether that's state government, federal, or here at the Adelaide Festival Centre. And uh, as the director, my vision is uh, to make the festival as big and as accessible as it, as, as it can be. So the way we work in a financial model is uh, we'll have core funding allocated one or two years out uh, and then as an overly ambitious uh, festival director uh, I'll seek out corporate partnerships uh, grants, philanthropy, donor circles and keep building the pot uh, on one side and then <laughs> dropping the expenditure straight on mm. top of it to, to match. So usually by the time we launch a festival which could be about two months out from opening we have one major area of risk profile and that's the box office uh, because that's the only area by the time a festival opens where we don't have any control over that mm. income and uh, and therefore uh, that that really puts the pressure on a marketing team to make sure that they, they can move the tickets uh, and uh, uh, a box it depends every festival is different uh, and so the box office if it's a very commercially driven festival uh, can be a huge risk exposure but actually I have to say uh, with our festival uh, uh, as we're really growing audiences for um, uh, ticket sales across uh, contemporary Asia uh, uh, the, the risk profile on it is is big I mean it puts my you know my job and reputation on the line uh, but you know we're not talking 70 or 80 percent of our overarching expenditure we're probably talking somewhere more around 20 to 30 percent of overarching expenditure and that and that's reasonably manageable with a good marketing team which we, which we have so there's multiple streams of uh, of revenue to drop into the bottom line uh, and uh, and the, 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 the summary of all that is, to a large degree, because we're not here to make a profit, and, uh, and, and I'm the wrong person to employ if you want to make a profit, <laughs> uh, uh, but what I'll do is I will dig around every single corner to make sure that um, I can forecast uh, uh, the best value spend of expenditure and offset that risk by earned income or, or box office uh, during the festival. So it's not profit that's driving you, what, what are those drivers of success? Uh, so uh, the, the drivers for success for uh, a subsidised arts festival like this are the uh, artistic integrity of, of what we're doing and that can be measured in several ways. One is just straight out uh, ticketed mm -hmm. attendance, uh, overarching attendance through the festival hub and the site, critical response, uh, uh, industry response and national or international reach uh, and then lastly community buy-in, does the community value. So all of those areas are, are the primary measures for a subsidised arts festival and and you know look I, I, I honestly believe they're all valid and uh, and I do like to assess all of them and uh, uh, I think that if we can get uh, uh, you know more than 70 to 75 percent success rate uh, across each of those measures that says we're doing the right thing uh, and we're on the right track. So uh, it's uh, we, we're thinking about uh, income and expenditure all the time. Uh, we're managing it extremely closely uh, but uh, it's uh, unfortunately not an industry with uh, a big bonus uh, pay packet <laughs> at the end of the at the end of the festival because as a director I'd rather see that reflected in uh, in uh, the artistic program that we mm. present uh, and hope that the audience uh, uh, buy into that. 
going back, I guess, with your experience of being involved in festivals, have there been uh, sort of what festivals that just haven't worked? Um, and and what were the reasons typically that, that the festivals may not have hit the mark? Mm. Yeah, look, lots of festivals go under uh, uh, for, for different reasons. Uh, uh, you know, we've, we've seen the, the birth, death, resurgence, death, resurgence of Big Day Out. Uh, <laughs> it's very public. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, that's one of the festivals that does run to a large degree uh, with a commercial mentality. Mm. It's, a, it's a very popular mainstream uh, music festival uh, with promoters really trying to uh, make sure that they can hit profit targets. And, uh, and so the risk associated with that uh, can be seen in the outcome of... Of, uh, of the pattern of that festival that I just uh, mm. outlined. And, of course, the, it's also a festival that's playing to a, a de- demographic where there's social risk, like the, the issue around drugs and, mm. uh, and safety and security as well. Uh, so uh, I've been involved in three large festivals, uh, one in Brisbane, one in Toronto, and, and one here in Adelaide. And I've also been on the secretariat of the, uh, of the Australian Confederation of mm. International Arts Festivals. So, so I've been in dialogue with a lot of the other arts festivals around the country. So so, so I'm quite lucky in terms of seeing how the different festivals operate. Uh, uh, as an Australian who's moved all around the country uh, and is now happily here in Adelaide, uh, I can see you know festivals such as Sydney running in January being much more dependent on box office because it's summer at Sydney, it's fun, it's vibrant, everyone wants to party, and there's a certain sense of, uh, I guess, of uh, financial exchange uh, that can work under that model versus. Uh, something like Asia Festival here where we're very much trying to develop a new audience to engage with or be more aware of uh, contemporary Asian culture and, and, and communicate a message on top of great artistic work that uh, Asia may not be what you think it is. Uh, mm. So, uh, so, uh, so, so the, the different models in different festivals uh, come, are aligned with the artistic objectives of, of what we're trying to achieve. Look, I've been involved in uh, festivals where, uh, you know, there, there's a, a certain kind of... Um, we, we do have to ask the question, uh, are the audience buying into what we're trying to achieve? I, I shouldn't really say which festival in particular, uh, but... but uh, uh, but luckily, it's not Oz Asia Festival, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and you know I felt that there was a huge amount of government expenditure for a little take up uh, in terms of audience, and and I think that that uh, that needs to be addressed when it happens. It was it's really interesting to hear you talk about risk, and I know we sort of asked that question about festivals, but it's a side of uh, you know when you look at Oz Asia, you'd never think that this would all start by you assessing some of the risk profiles. You know mm. where where can this fall down? What do I have to do to mitigate um, financial loss, or how can I spend the the money most wisely? So it's an interesting, it's really interesting space, mm. and it's so festivals are so open to criticism though. I think like it's. I think because it's often creative and it's quite emotive. You know, if a big day out's a flop, it's huge mm. news. I mean, we had the, the recent um, beer festival in, in, in China and uh, Adelaide went over there and um, that failed. And then um, it becomes a massive media issue. So for someone like yourself who's leading events, it's, um, 
uh, you're really opening yourself up, aren't you? That's right. And I received some good advice around success and failure from actually someone who lives here in Adelaide and I consider a bit of a mentor. His name is Julian Julian Merrick. Uh, He's a professor in theatre. And... uh, you know, often as a young uh, theatre director like I used to be or a festival director, you know, you, you, you just want 100% buy into what you do. Mm. And and, uh, and Julian was very clever at explaining to me that uh, that's actually impossible and uh, provided a much better statistical analysis of how you can measure success and failure from the perspective of an audience. Uh, and he said that uh, really if, if you're never going to win 100% of your audience over, but if you can generally get two-thirds of your audience to really buy into what you're doing and agree with the vision, then you've got a great success. There's always going to be a third who you know aren't happy about the weather, had a bad you know, trip with the transport coming to the event, actually just didn't like the work, or you know was sitting next to someone that was snoring in the theatre, or tripped over <laughs> when they were walking around. The f- that just happens. But two thirds is, is a really good number for uh, large scale events and a positive outcome. If you only get a third of your audience liking it, then Possibly it is a failure, and uh, and there's there's probably a reason why two thirds of the uh, of the attendants didn't buy into it. And you really need to think about what you're doing, mm. how you did, and why. And so I really believe in that uh, uh, assessment of uh, one third, two third for uh, a measure for large scale uh, cultural events, where the decision uh, I, I, we can set it up, but the decision has to be, and rightly so, is in the hands of the patrons. How do you find yourself in a position? where you run festivals. Where, where did this journey begin? Were, were, there, were there threads of this back in school or um, where, 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 when did you become apparent that this was something that you wanted to get into? It was a, a natural evolution. Uh, I'd always been interested in the arts uh, uh, for, for doing theatre in high school where most people probably find that interest. And uh, Surprisingly, I, back then, I, I, I don't come from a family uh, of uh, artistic uh, uh, people and uh, and so I always thought there was no such thing as a paid job in the arts there was people, <laughs> people just acted and didn't get paid for it or, or the TV just happened mm. and uh, uh, so I studied journalism thinking that uh, I could have a career in that and you know, creative writing and ethics and traveling around and meeting wonderful people and uh, I studied uh, art simultaneously uh, thinking that that's just because I like it and when I graduated uh, from my double degree in journalism and, and, and the arts, I, I, I found out that a cadetship in the art in journalism meant that you had to go out into rural Australia and get paid something like 200 bucks a week for three mm. years. And uh, I was about 24 or 25 and I thought, oh, I'm, I'm really old and experienced <laughs> and, and the idea of getting 200 bucks a week uh, on a cadetship is, is not for me. And uh, of course, <laughs> uh, 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 I thought, well, if that's all it is, I might as well uh, just go and try work in the arts. So I just started doing fringe theatre with my friends and they all wanted to be actors and that meant I could just basically think about how to be the director and uh, I really enjoyed that and I, I simultaneously did film and television as well as theatre and then did my postgraduate at the Victorian College of the Arts where I uh, did my master's as a theatre director and, uh, and once I'd done that I, I pretty much locked uh, into a focus 
particularly on the performing arts side, more so than some of the stuff I'd been dabbling in with film and television. And of course, I'd never uh, taken up journalism at all. Uh, so after my postgraduate, I, I was lucky enough to get a secondment as an assistant director at Melbourne Theatre Company and uh, worked uh, with the artistic director there, Simon Phillips, and, uh, and, uh, and then did one or two more shows as an assistant director and ended up uh, applying for uh, a position at Queensland Theatre Company where I picked up a, a gig there uh, and I stayed there uh, for five years directing uh, uh, shows. Uh, and it's a long story, but uh, hang in there. Uh, after, no, after we, uh, this is what Rooster Radio is about. <laughs> yeah, we, love it. Yeah. we love a good long story yeah. on Rooster Radio. It's true. And I, I love, you know, I really enjoyed working in uh, in theatre. And I think over five years, I got to direct ten different productions. They were uh, generally classic uh, theatre works from the 20th century repertoire or new Australian work. And uh, and I was young for the gig. I think I was between the age of 29 and 34 or something like that. And, and after being there for five years, I thought, look, this is great, but uh, if I stay here or, or stay in the similar position, I'll turn 50 and I'll have directed 100 plays and I would have you know, done another insignificant version of uh, Oscar Wilde and I would have done another insignificant version of Shakespeare and, and just kind of thought, oh, as a young kind of... Uh, you know, person that's passionate about the performing arts, is, is this what I want to do? Wanted to make a mark. Yeah, that's right. So I just realised I had three degrees, two undergrads, a postgrad. It was all focused on uh, on um, contemporary... Uh, uh, sorry, all focused on 20th century work from Europe and really just had no awareness of Asia, Latin America, the wider world, contemporary performance. It was very traditional text-based work. And, and I really just looked around and thought, this isn't the world we live in anymore. So I just jumped on a plane, took off to uh, China and uh, Nepal and... Uh, uh, Southeast Asia and uh, Japan and travelled around for a long time and looked at different performing art styles, different cultures, musical backgrounds, contemporary dance and just had this change of track when I was there thinking uh, I need to be in arts festivals more so than the theatre company because I think that uh, the arts is much broader, much more exciting, it reflects uh, uh, international collaboration a lot more, uh, is a lot more fluid and, uh, and so I, I came back and flipped uh, from from Queensland Theatre Company over to Brisbane Festival, where luckily they picked me up as executive producer, and and that's where where I started my career in in uh, international arts festivals, where I, where I am now, and I very much well, I, I thoroughly uh, cherish my background uh, trained in journalism because it taught me how to write, and I think that that's a fundamental thing mm. uh, skill to have uh, that's dying actually. Uh, but I also have the, the really wonderful dramaturgical uh, 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 knowledge that you, I believe you need to acquire through theatre with uh, three-act structure, narrative structure, character, space, uh, uh, movement around and, and communicating with an audience. But uh, with that background, uh, it gives me uh, the confidence uh, to really curate a large arts festival and tell stories through the, the programming of this festival and, and pushing a message out to our modern and contemporary audiences it's it's an extensive I guess background that you've got including what, three degrees uh, an extensive career in the arts already plus you well traveled but did you also you were a swimmer as well is that right <laughs> yeah that's right how did you fit all of this stuff in so you sw- but and you swam for Australia I did yes <laughs> just throw that in and just for the for the uh, listeners who've, who've never seen Joseph, he looks younger than James. He's got, he's got less grey hair There's than James. <laughs> and he looks like he could be on Home and Away. Yeah, he looks like oh. he could be on Home and Away. He's 
He's young, fresh-faced. He's, he's, he's a rooster. He's a rooster. Oh, thank you. That's <laughs> lovely to hear. But it is a valid point. Yeah. I mean, swimming is uh, one of those crazy, crazy sports where you've got to put in ridiculous amount of hours of training. How did you fit it in? Well, I, I swam as a teenager and, uh, and uh, luckily it was the sport I chose matched uh, the type of person I am. I'm six foot two and, and you know, reasonably slim. So uh, it, it just meant that uh, if you put in the hours, uh, you kind of move up through the ranks. So modest. Oh, you put in the hours yeah, and you end yeah, up yeah, yeah, just yeah. swimming for Australia. Australia. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, uh, you know, uh, I... I Monty, <laughs> Monty played cricket and he put a lot of hours in, but he never played no, for the no, Australian no, cricket team. So. No, we're going to... We're going to get on to my cricket career again because I'm not sure that Joseph's got an, another hour on top of hour in discussion. So anyway, well, look, you know, I, I, I scrape. I, I say I scraped into the edge of the Australian team uh, doing the long distance marathons uh, back in uh, the mid '90s when I was about 20, 21, and uh, I really enjoyed it. But uh, I, I, I didn't really want to have a professional career in swimming. And after doing two years on the the team, uh, I wanted to quickly go through uni and start my professional career sorry to harp on it but i've <laughs> i'm a bit passionate about it are the two pursuits overly different in terms of sort of personal attributes and disciplines sport and the arts and and drama and, and theater yeah it, it's quite interesting because often in our society uh we we think of sports and arts as very separate things we we have uh, ideas about the people in those two uh, fields as being very opposite and uh, 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 but actually uh, the swimming swimming gave me discipline it gave me focus and uh, but also even though you have to race by yourself it's a very team driven sport where you need to rely on the people around you you have to trust other people uh, collaborate and uh, and uh, and and just work hard and so I guess having that those uh, that back that background uh, helped me when I I went to university and thought about my career and, and so uh, I, I, well I, I really hate the idea of getting up at 4.30am every morning and I just cannot fathom how I actually did mm. that. Uh, 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 it, uh, it, does, uh, it does just keep you on the right track. I grew up playing football and my um, stepdad's actually a theatre reviewer here in Adelaide and, uh, and so I spent um, year 12 um, rehearsing for uh, our year 12 drama production and also playing football and then I'd go to the like a Wednesday you know night premiere or something so my world was sort of straddling these two worlds of sport and drama as well which is not not always super common or that's what I felt anyway. Mm -hmm. In the American college system, actually, the, the sports and the arts cross over quite a lot, which is which is very interesting to see. I think you you, you, you can see a lot of uh, uh, individuals who can identify those links, and I, I'm a big supporter of it. I, I don't, I'm not really a, an, a sporty person, and weirdly, I'm not really uh, an overly arty person. You know, I, I just believe in being who you are and living your mm. life, and and uh, making sure that you just do what what you think is right for you at any point in time. So I I. I humbly take a little bit of pride in the fact that you wouldn't go, oh, that guy's a sporty guy or that guy's an arty guy. I just think uh, we should all uh, take a little bit of everything in the society we live in and be who we are. <laughs> Sounds a little bit um, PC, but uh, that's that's uh, what I believe. No, I think, it, I think it's great. On the, I guess, to, to bring the discussion back towards uh, culture, um, Asian culture seems to be very much entrenched in Australia um, with our, um, our, our business passions, food, but there seems to be a bit of a disconnect there with Asian art. 
Why do you think that is? That's something that uh, led me to uh, consider uh, applying and, and being appointed at this festival. Uh, uh, the I, I saw in my you know, short time in Australia that uh, the society was changing a lot. We're becoming a very multicultural society. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Newcastle, and uh, in, uh, you know, I've experienced uh, and seen uh, racist attitudes uh, when I was a child back in the 80s and even in the early 90s. And I really think that, uh, and then I saw the populism of someone like Pauline Hanson come into politics in the early 90s as well, and and really just didn't like any of that. And uh, as I was working in the arts, I really. Uh, became extremely self-aware that the arts uh, was not engaging with uh, Asian culture in any way whatsoever. And it's understandable uh, because, you know, we we were a colonised country uh, who really have have spent uh, the first hundred years of federation looking back towards England and kind of saying, oh, we're here, we're we're your child and we're on the other side of the world and we're waving back to you to say, oh, hi, hi, mum, we're still here. (laughs) You know, we're we're still doing what you taught us and, uh, you know, we're we're being really well behaved. Uh, And and that's okay. Most most colonised countries do that. Uh, But like any child, um, at some point, you know, you really have to leave the parents and, and become grow up and become an individual and leave and and uh, and Australia I think is really now starting to go through that transition where we're becoming a little bit more self-aware about where we are geographically in the world um, who our friends are who our neighbors are uh, and uh, how are we going to um, position ourselves uh, in our adult life in the 21st century <laughs> and uh, and of course when you look at all of that um, uh, we have to look at Asia. We have to look at the migration that's coming into Australia, uh, the, the change of the population. Probably by 2020, 25% of our population will be either um, uh, uh, migrants from or first-generation uh, 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 people from Asia. And uh, the the influence of a- Asian culture now uh, is growing rapidly. And this... And I often tell this little analogy uh, when people ask about why Asia uh, and why Asia Festival, and I say, well, we're at the start of the 21st century. It's the year 1916. It's actually early... Uh, <laughs> 2016. Sometimes it feels like 2016. It's 2016. And we're only in the first stages of this century. And I'm a big believer at looking back at history to forecast what's happening. And so if you go back 200 years, you look at Europe, it was the centre of the world. There was this thing called enlightenment. Uh, People were becoming aware of these things like evolution as opposed to creation. And... uh, 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 and uh, there was you know, culture and, and architecture and, 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 and Europe really was the uh, cultural influencer uh, of the world 200 years ago. And then if you uh, only look back 100 years ago uh, to something like 1916, uh, you, you, you'll see that uh, America was really starting to... F- find its feet and uh, industrialism uh, had been a huge success and uh, uh, America was kind of, you know, kind of showcasing its independence while the rest of the world was blowing itself up in world wars. And uh, if you spoke to a European in, 19, in 1916 and said uh, America's going to be the centre of the world in the, uh, in the 20th century, they'd probably laugh at you and they'd go, oh, that kind of farming industrial backwater in mm. 1916, all they do is build railroads and you know, you know, dig for oil. And of course, lo and behold, America America 
became the center of uh, the world in the 20th century. And uh, the same thing's happening again. You know, our politicians are saying this is the Asian century. Uh, and all, all the uh, indicators are pointing in that direction. Literally, the population, um, the growing, uh, the rapid growth of the middle class, the fact that China will become um, the, the, the major economy in the world. Uh, India's not that far behind. And uh, the, the opening of the doors of countries like China, uh, uh, the already techn technically advanced uh, in Japan, the ease of travel around the world, and the the the, the just the, the sheer interest that uh, many developed countries in Asia have in terms of engaging with the rest of the world from a cultural, business, and exchange perspective says that um, this is the Asian century, and uh, it's not that hard to see when you think about it that way. And therefore, I really believe that. Uh, uh, the performing arts has to be at the forefront of that, has to think about that, and has to pivot away from its traditional roots in uh, European identity and start to engage with uh, some of the contemporary ideas and um, modern influences from places like China, Japan, Korea, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, everywhere across that region. To take you back to your trip when you're travelling through and experiencing a lot of the culture and arts in, in Asia, what were the aspects or flavours or themes that really grabbed you, that, that sort of resonated with you back then? Uh, I just really fell in love with uh, different uh, modes of storytelling, uh, different cultures, uh, different perspectives. You know, for example, if we look at China, people just think about the Han uh, people or, or China from the perspective of traditional icons such as uh, Cantonese uh, 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 or Beijing-based opera or, or dragons and lanterns. But if you spend time in a place like China, you'll see actually there's much deeper uh, rich traditions uh, and there's also contemporary flavours that are very unique and different uh, to the contemporary flavours that we might have here in Asia and uh, it just really opened my eyes in terms of how unlimited uh, the performing arts are and uh, you know I'd kind of come from a background where there's probably about 40 or 50 traditional European works including about 12 Shakespeare's in non-stop repertoire across all the major performing arts companies across Australia and that was about it and I just thought no, no. There's there's just a cavalcade of really exciting stuff, and uh, and the, and every time you, and I believe as a as someone that's uh, got an artistic responsibility, uh, that uh, your number one. Uh, 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 I guess uh, mode of self assessment is you can never stop being curious. And uh, so I was curious about China, about traditional culture, contemporary culture. I was curious about contemporary culture in Japan, curious about what was happening in Indonesia from a traditional modern perspective. And, and I, as an artistic director, uh, I always want to be in a position where I'm learning, uh, discovering new things, uh, finding new artists, and, and being able to think about how to put that in context for the city that I live in, like Adelaide, uh, the, the relationships between the past, the present, and how all that can come together. And, and that's really what I... That a lot of the a lot of that thinking came from that big trip where I took off and, and disappeared over in Asia for two months. You mentioned this focus on Europe and America in art. This lack of diversity is that is that still a problem now? You think, or or are we just starting to come out of that? Uh, look, uh, I'm a little bit uh, provocative in in that uh, uh, area, and, and I guess. Uh, 
I have to say, yes, we are, uh, but it, it, it's a major problem around the world. Uh, one of the shows that we're presenting in the festival is called The Record. It actually debuted in New York a couple of years ago, and it was it's a show where the, the, the cast are actually the community members of the society that you live in now. So, so here in Adelaide, we have 45 members of the Adelaide community. But the, the show purposely rehearses about 200 people to whittle them down to an actual reflection of of the the demographic of Adelaide right now age gender race uh, um, um, you know sexuality ev everything and uh, and when this show debuted in New York in about 2012 even in the New York Times uh, the critics wrote uh, it's so refreshing finally to see a show in New York that um, reflects our own multicultural identity uh, so uh, across the the Western world uh, and even to a large degree in Asia uh, the performing arts has to be a lot more proactive in in programming work um, and this is a little bit controversial but programming work um, in in the context of awareness of our own society um, but also without um, barriers of what I call otherness uh, you know there, there's you know been a ton of contemporary dance companies that just keep coming into Australia mostly from Europe uh, uh, but actually uh, there's so much stunning contemporary dance that's coming out of places like Asia or like Latin America and uh, some sometimes I think that um, we, we have to and I just think I just think this is normal anywhere in the world but we have to get better at overcoming any prejudice towards otherness I think I don't think people are openly prejudiced I, I just think that um, uh, a lot of cultures anywhere in the world have a, have a have an inbuilt sense of uh, of wanting to um, I guess um, maintain the status quo or, or or kind of taking otherness with a little bit of caution and uh, I, I don't think we can afford to do that in the 21st century only 30 years ago people didn't even fly anywhere we didn't have budget airlines travel was expensive you take one big backpacker trip to Europe and then maybe go away on your honeymoon and then go to Disneyland and then retire in a camper van <laughs> and that was only 30 years ago you know our world's not like that anymore um, we you know we're a mobile world, and we 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 have to actively embrace um, as many cultures, uh, countries' awareness of um, shifting um, movement of people because that's going to continue to happen uh, this century. Uh, and the, the I, I mean, I, I can't. You, you can see I often think in, in very, uh, I guess, uh, try and forecast, but I, I can't even think about what, what this world will look like at the end, in, in 80 years at the end of this century, but I can tell you it won't be anything like it looks like now. Uh, it'll be completely integrated in some unpredictable way. And uh, in these early, early days of the 21st century, I just strongly believe, as you can probably tell, uh, we should be contributing to uh, a greater uh, engagement between cultures, people, and, and, and making sure that the arts plays a significant role in terms of doing that. That's awesome. Um, you talked about that responsibility to, to bring sort of this experience to the people and make it accessible and fun. Where do you start when you then get given the responsibility of being, you know, the artistic director? How do you then start with your program? Where do you start? Do you start with a whiteboard or do you start on researching on the web or that where do we where do you begin well uh i the the i begin before i even got the role which was that i pitched my vision 
and it, it was pretty simple and I've said it 20 times on this segment already which is it was to introduce contemporary Asia to uh, Australian audiences so that, that, that that's actually that gets a good chunk of a base layer of how you put a festival together and then you know uh, we'll identify uh, a couple of significant artworks and generally with my background it's either going to be in theatre or dance that uh, uh, have artists expressing that vision and if you look on the front cover of the brochure this year you'll see a, an artist from Japan called Hiroki Yamita kind of uh, you know kind of a, a small figure in this huge multimedia uh, kind of installation that looks like there's stars all around him or something like that and, and that, that very much captures the, the 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 thinking and the look and the feel that I want to communicate uh, about uh, my vision for contemporary Asia to Australian audiences. That that's really the starting point for how I put it together. And then you know I'll spend uh, a good uh, uh, three months of the year, broken up over twelve months, uh, looking at different artists, different works that I think have a nice uh, a nice correlation between what those artists are doing in their home countries uh, alongside uh, how that might be read or interpreted by our audiences in Adelaide and making sure that fits into a, a sense of contemporary vision. I'll also uh, um, have a lot of meetings between, uh, say, artists from Australia uh, and artists from Asia who might already be collaborating and try and find out what, what they're collaborating on. Is it something that we could support? Is there a platform that we could do, use to present that? And then uh, finally... Uh, with a festival like Ozasia, it's very partner-driven. So I have a lot of meetings with, uh, say, uh, Nick Mitzvich at the Art Gallery or Erica Green at Samstag or Caxer uh, with the City Hall, uh, with the guys who run the Social Creative, and really look at this sense of uh, how does Adelaide as a city buy into the vision of contemporary Asia? And the great news is actually all the other directors around the city believe believe in this a lot too, and, and that makes uh, my role quite easy because we can have conversations, meetings, I'll talk about what are we trying to do for the festival and they'll think about that and uh, and then we'll be able to kind of put this huge festival together that uh, showcases visual arts, film, music, uh, outdoor events, moonland parades and, and theatre and dance. So it seems like a really collaborative process. Because I would imagine identifying amazing Asian artists to bring out here must be a, a daunting process. So mm. do you just draw on these relationships in terms of identifying the right people to, to bring across? Yep, that's right. So it's a, it's a really, uh, I think a great festival uh, has to have a healthy combination of, uh, of an artistic director with a you know, reasonably strong vision and, and some links to some particular artists that reflect that vision. Uh, and then uh, I think the secret to a good festival is, uh, is uh, collaborative buy-in, uh, working with other directors, whether it's art galleries or the cinema or uh, other artistic companies and making sure that there's a shared alignment to what what you're trying to do and uh, and bringing that together so you know if we look at the art gallery of south australia they've got a really incredible exhibition on as part of our festival called ever blossoming where they've looked at some of their back catalogue of of uh, of uh, japanese artwork and we've fused that with some uh, contemporary pieces that we've uh, that we've um, brought in from from team lab from tokyo and sat all of that together so the the and and 
I couldn't have done that on my own. And I, you know, I don't know if the art gallery could have done that on their own, but it, but it's about us all working together. And and the same thing outside with our festival hub. You know, we all know that the Royal Croquet Club is is now a big highlight of the March season, and the guys behind that uh, are, are just really successful uh, entrepreneurs, businessmen. Uh, they're excellent uh, entertainers, and they know how to throw a party. And and uh, and I really. And uh, well, I might th- think that I know how to throw a party. They're actually really better at it. And, um, Fairly large scale party, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, that's right. And so, you know, I really wanted to sit down with them and go, you know, everything you do in March is fantastic, but you know, let's 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 do it in September and let's make it about contemporary Asia and let's open up, you know, that that kind of skill that you have and bring people into buy into the the sense of fun and they, and they take the lead on that and and it works really well. And the amazing activating space and and I wonder. We've had Nick um, Mitsovich before on Rooster Radio, and there's some, so many similarities there as, as you're um, as I'm talking to you. But one of the things he talked about is again that responsibility to make this stuff accessible. He said if he could, he'd rip the front off the <laughs> yes. off the building, you know, yeah. in the art gallery, and just let people come in. What are some specific things that you've done that are sort of designed to make this stuff accessible? Well, uh, the the main thing that we've done is our big, I call it our big 10-year birthday present to the city of Adelaide, where we've put on this huge big outdoor concert series uh, as part of the Social Creative's Good Fortune Market. So uh, anyone can wander into the Elder Park, uh, and I think we've got a license for about 8,000 people. And on any night during the festival, uh, we've got huge big international uh, music stars coming in to perform for free. And and pretty much, there's there's actually nearly 30 30 acts from um, either high-profile international or Australian uh, uh, musicians now, and then there's probably 60 or 70 local community DJs, roving shows. There's just a ton of stuff on, and you could charge a ticket for this easy. But uh, I, I, for me, uh, uh, I'm not. I don't, didn't necessarily want to charge a ticket for this one because uh, I. Firstly, I want to overcome this bridge of of introducing contemporary Asia in its most accessible and open way. And, and, and so all the ducks lined up in a row where the social creative have a great reputation, that they know how to run a site, they know how to attract audiences, we know how to program great music, they do too, so they've helped us on that. Uh, and... Uh, and we want to open it up and say, come in for free. And uh, uh, one of the things, though, that uh, does sit in the back of my mind goes back to the start of this conversation, which is which is the, the financial terms of, of what we do. Uh, we do want to maintain value on art. Uh, you know, the, the, in different various, of, uh, in different art forms, that there, there should be an exchange. So if I'm putting on contemporary dance, uh, yeah, it's great if it's free, but to some degree we have to maintain a culture where people understand that um, that this is a transaction, mm. and that what you're seeing on stage are professional artists, and uh, they they need to earn a living. And you're uh, saying it's a risk of cheapening it, almost. Yeah, well, it's about it, look. It's about finding the balance between w- w- when you're going. F- when, you, when you're presenting work for free, and when, mm. and when you're ticketing, when you're ticketing work this year, uh, this year in particular, because of ten years and wanting to be as accessible as we possibly can be, I've gone a little bit more heavy on free and accessible. Uh, uh, but at the same time, the idea is uh, that filters people into the theatres mm. uh, to the ticketed transactions at the same time. So you know, if, if it's a if, freemium model, come, we'll give you a little bit, and then yeah. hopefully you'll come and do a bit more, and you'll pay yeah, for it. Yeah, you know, I, I haven't heard that word, but I like it, and uh, you know, I. To, to be honest, this year we're probably something like uh, 60% free 
activity is 40% paid, roughly, I'm not sure. I would like to, over the next, uh, say, one or two years, slowly transition that to the other the other way around. So it should be around 60% paid, 40% free, to really kind of encourage people to make that financial transaction to uh, engage with professional artists. It's And it's about setting that expectation. We'd never go to the Adelaide Oval for, and expect it to be free. We'd never mm. watch a game of sport and mm. expect it to be free, would we? Mm. We, we know that there's a transaction mm. there and we're happy mm. to pay that. Mm. Um, art is we've spoken about how art sits in this interesting space in terms of um, Asian culture in Australia Australia has this obsession it seems with doing business in Asia it seems to be this huge carrot it's the Asian century as you said what role can art play in this what can it teach us that can perhaps help us to break down barriers that can open up um, economic opportunities Mm. Well, there's there's um, several answers to uh, that question or provocation. Uh, <laughs> one, it uh, clearly the arts. Uh, gives us a better cultural understanding of different countries that we're engaging with and particularly in a contemporary sense because you know, we, you know uh, w- what is it like to live in and do business in Shanghai right now you know it, it, it's very different to maybe our traditional uh, expectations of China those two things are different contemporary performance bridges bridges that also with cultural barriers uh, and traditional modes of doing business across different countries around the world that there's different uh, uh, social um, context to do business in. Uh, so, you know, if we just look at Australia, um, as many of us know, uh, a lot of businesses do uh, 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 have success by buying a corporate box at the football, um, taking a client there, buying them beers, doing the deal, and then by the time you get into the boardroom a week later, that's just the formality, right? That, 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 so there's modes of doing business in different ways across different cultures. But uh, because, say, for example, um, um, dare I say it, AFL is not the most popular sport in Asia, uh, 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 we have to think about uh, how we maintain those um, business relations, and and really, arts and culture for me is uh, is a no-brainer. Um, you know, it, I think that. Uh, it, uh, as an Australian, if I uh, happened to be in Asia and um, was able to show Australian art to a colleague, um, I'd have a sense of pride that you're looking at my culture. And if that person shows interest in my culture, I think you're, you know you're, you're, you care, you respect my background, my culture, and uh, and this forges a, a strong relationship between me and, and you. And and of course, that situation is uh, is um, reciprocal. Uh, and so I th- a lot of people across. Uh, Asia, especially given that a lot of countries like Australia are, are, are desperately drive, trying to drive business deals with Asia. Um, uh, again, I'm not a businessman, but uh, I, I fundamentally believe that um, uh, 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 an awareness and respect of, of um, another person's culture uh, is a fundamental part of doing business. And uh, it's, um, it shows um, uh, an awareness, uh, an interest, uh, professionalism, and provides a, a comfortable social environment where there can be a dialogue and exchange and uh, progress relations. Fantastic. I'm, I'm thinking it's uh, time for rapid fire, which is uh, a part of our every podcast that we do that has varying degrees of success. As in it's pretty much always been unsuccessful because we normally don't prepare for rapid fire. But on this occasion, this is the first time we've actually done a bit of thinking about our rapid fire questions. And the, the, usually the history with rapid fire is that we ask questions that end, like, just take about five minutes to explain. So we're going to try our best to keep and, it narrow. And when we say rapid fire, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to 
finish your answers very quickly. If you want to expand, feel free. Don't let us stop you. Okay. James, please. Uh, so the art or the performance that um, has had one of the biggest impacts on you? August Osage County, uh, which was one of the best theatre shows I've ever seen in my life. Don't worry about the movie, just see the play. The place in Asia, if you can pick one that has had, that had the biggest impact on you? Uh, the Great Wall of China. It, it, there's a reason why it's called the Great <laughs> Wall of China, that's it. <laughs> Do you know my theatre critic stepfather, Murray Bramwell? I do. He's a lovely man. Has he ever panned anything that you've done? Uh, no, but uh, <laughs> I, I respect uh, his reviews. I think he's one of Australia's uh, 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 most recognised theatre playwrights, and I hope he comes down to the festival. And if he does pan one of my shows, um, there's probably some credibility behind it, so I, I could wear <laughs> you've it. You've been very generous there. <laughs> Three highlights coming up. For the Oz Asia Festival. Mm. Hiroki Yumita's Split Flow and Holistic Strata. It's the show on the front cover. It's really easy. Just uh, book a ticket. It's the best dance work you'll see. The record I already spoke about, 45 people from Adelaide on stage doing a contemporary dance work could go completely wrong, so come and see it. <laughs> and uh, Skin, uh, that's the immersive uh, theatre work uh, where you actually don't sit down in a theatre, you actually buy a ticket and go through the process of what it's like to be an illegal migrant trying to go from one country to another. You'll be blindfolded, put in the back of a truck, uh, you'll be kind of uh, led down dark alleys. Some people might be given free champagne, other people might kind of just get left behind halfway <laughs> through the show and have to figure out their own way home. Uh, again, uh, it's something that you'll have never done before and uh, I would say they are my top three picks. Wow. Um, the part of organising a massive festival like this that just gives you the shits, that you're happy just to completely delegate and let someone else worry about? Ground transport. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> we have uh, uh, something like a thousand people in town oh, at any one time. Like running Someone, someone's got to figure out the whole schedule for hire cars, movements, meeting yeah. at the airport, all that type of stuff. Boring. Uh, I, was I skipped that somehow <laughs> in my career trajectory. I, I, someone was looking out for me. The food I should eat at the Good Fortune Market. Oh, you know, the things that sell the best, oh, it's, so ter it's like fairy floss and waffles. So. No, yeah, no, no. You should not even be selling that. Yeah. Oh, no. I know you, you come down, we'll have 25 food stores and the longest line will be at the waffles, I'm sure. But <laughs> because so you may not have been briefed with the fact that I'm actually an Asian food critic. Yeah. Uh, James and I eat a Vietnamese roll almost every day. Yeah. And um, he's sort of, he's not too fussy, but... I'm, I'm very particular about my Vietnamese rolls in terms of crunchiness of the of the, of the bread. He goes on about the bread and the pate, and yeah. honestly, when he gets a good Vietnamese roll, you can't shut him up for about <laughs> 10 minutes. Okay, well, look, my, my answer is uh, Hoi Pinoy. Uh, they've got the big, huge meat sticks, and oh, yes. the smoke kind of drifts right across the city, so, so uh, uh, enjoy Hoi Pinoy. Well, uh, Joseph Mitchell, thank you so much for, I guess, peeling back the, the different layers, um, the artistic, the financial and the visionary layers that make up the Oz Asia Festival. Um, it's been a, a magnificent insight into your progress and your journey to this point. And uh, considering we're on Lee Street, we can't wait to come down and experience Oz Asia Festival firsthand. Oh, great. Well, it's lovely to be uh, with the rooster and... Uh... <laughs> 
You're an honorary member now, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you and you. Nick Mitsovic are both included. Absolutely. So. My parents will be happy because uh, they've got a rooster uh, on their farm, and I'll tell oh, them really? I was on the rooster. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, they'll have no idea what I'm talking about. But they'll think <laughs> you, that it sounds good. You may be good. surprised. We are our We're broadcasting to a lot of farms <laughs> around Australia. Well, thank you uh, for the invitation. It was great to talk to you. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Joseph Mitchell, director of AusAsia Festival in Adelaide. There's so much going on across theatre, dance, film, music, visual arts and food. Find out all the details and dates at ausasiafestival.com.au. If you haven't subscribed to Rooster Radio, please do and sign up for our mailing list at roosterradio.biz so we can tell you about some events in the pipeline and much more. And finally, on Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash roosterradiohq. Thanks for listening. Thank you.